0: So, the title for my sermon this morning is called The King's Antinomies, and if you don't know what the word antinomy means, it means you did not have uh, a liberal arts education uh, or or are an expert in almost useless trivia. Um, An antinomy is a category, it's it's a thing, it's an idea, it's a statement that sounds contradictory or self-contradictory, but actually isn't, or it's something that... to, to one culture maybe sound like a contradiction, but uh, but to another it, it isn't because it's a, it's actually a cultural difference that contradiction is exposing. So here's an example, because these are all throughout Scripture. In fact, I've, I've kind of always wanted but still been too intimidated to do a sermon series on uh, the apparent paradoxes in Scripture, like pull all of them out because I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, uh, but here's one, and this is the antinomy of... of Simultaneously, human agency and God's sovereignty. In Luke 22, verse 22, it says, this is where Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, goes up as it has been written, but woe to that man by whom he has been betrayed. So it has been predetermined because God is sovereign, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed because there is is still human agency such that it is just for that person, Judas in this case, to be punished. And so how can those two things both be true? What's interesting about antinomies is um, is they're apocalyptic. And apocalyptic can refer, yes, to kind of a theme or a style, but apocalypse means revealing. It means exposing. And these antinomies, when we we encounter something about God's seeming contradiction, it's actually saying something about our own hearts. And so Psalm 99 this morning is really a mirror that helps us see ourselves more clearly as well. And so that's where we're really going to focus this morning. And so there are two antinomies in Psalm 99. One is something that I think we can probably all really identify with and enter into, and I think will be really good and helpful. And the other one, yeah, um, I I just hope you come back next week. So the first antinomy, the easier one, so that you still listen throughout the rest of the sermon, um, is this combination of holiness and nearness, First, holiness, like this, this is probably the primary theme in the psalm. You, you see references or descriptions of God' holiness in verses 1, 3, 5, and 9, and, and, and implicit elsewhere as well. What does that word holy even mean, though, right? The Old Testament, and, and the New Testament for that matter, when, when you see the word holy, I want you to read into that set apart, distinct, different, other, Normally, we apply the word holy to a, a moral distance, and that is absolutely the case. God is holy in ways that absolutely we are not. He is morally perfect and other. But there's also these dimensions of, of being, right? Uh, of being and purpose that are involved in this holiness that is being described here. Let's talk first about being, though. God's nature, His existential DNA, if you will, His being is 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 more than just the moral dimension. He is so other that we have difficulty wrapping our heads and our hearts around it. Verse 1, it says that he he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Now, (laughs) when we think cherubim, we're thinking like, oh, Cupid, right? Well, I love the way one commentator actually described what's being stated here because it's easy to just read over this and be like, oh, yes, fancy poetic language, cool. He says, this is not the weaponless cupids of religious art, but mighty beings representative of earth's beasts. This living throne is a flying chariot, fiery with judgment and salvation. Or as Danny said before the service, it's so metal, right? The point is that this is is part of who God is. It is not just his behavior that is good and morally perfect. It is in his very being, in his ontology, his his DNA, who he is. But there's always a purpose to his holiness, too. And there's always a purpose to any holiness, right? When we, I think that probably the most popular way we use the word holy in in normal, everyday conversation is when we're referring to somebody, right, who is holier than thou, right? Right? And if if they're holier than thou, then there's this aspect of like they are morally superior. They're looking down at, their, at you, looking down their nose at you, right? And there's an there's like a, a, a separateness, a, a separation that's involved there. But that's that's not a godlike holiness at all. Walter Brueggemann says it best and better than I tried many times before I found this quote. Uh, he, He says, Yahweh is set apart in the sense of being incomparable, different, unlike any other. This God is not set apart from the world, however, but rather set apart to the world. In turn, ancient Israel is called to be holy or set apart to Yahweh. Holiness is thus not a separatist stance, but a relational stance. Yahweh relates to the world in a distinct way, and Israel is called to reflect that relational stance. And this makes sense. This is actually how we kind of recognize His holiness with His nearness, which is also just beautifully saturating this psalm. In the, in the second verse, it says, the Lord is great in Zion, not just great on His own, not just holy and other, but He is in Zion, the, the Jerusalem, the place and the people of God. God establishes his throne within his creation, number one, like in the world, not just, just anywhere in creation. That would be amazing and incredible. But he limited and constrained himself first to the geographic location of Israel, and then he made his home among his covenant people more fully and presently with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Her? Really? Yes, thank you for laughing, Todd. Todd has really been helpful the last couple Sundays. Um, if you were here last week, you know. Um, it further expounds on this in verse 6. It says that, that Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel, who was, also was among those who called upon his name. They, they functioned as mediators, go-betweens between God and Israel, and they were men of prayer. And that prayer had a pattern that is alluded to here. It is that they call on or cry out to God in desperation, not because of being deserving. And Yahweh answers and delivers. Let's put this together, though, and ask the so what. Why is it such a big deal that God is both holy and near at the same time? even, Even then, how can Yahweh be set apart and distant and imminent or with us at the same time? Here's the answer. Because beautifully, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were looking forward in anticipation and in faith to Jesus in ways that we can now look back in hindsight and see far more clearly. They didn't see Jesus in the way that we do, but they did see his outline and his silhouette because they were painfully and personally aware of how no merely human mediator was ever going to measure up and be sufficient. This means that Jesus... Jesus is our true and better Moses. He is our true and better Aaron. He is our true and better Samuel. By the way, all of them were pretty terrible people. Samuel, probably the least so. But they were not holy mediators by any stretch. And yet, Yahweh loved these morons. Like, and, and enough to answer, especially, like, Moses and Aaron were particularly dumb, Right? In ways that are like, oh, there's hope for me. Thank God, <laughs> right? Um, and He answers them faithfully every time. Even then, and that was before Jesus dies on a cross, not just to cleanse us from us, our sins and restore our spiritual moral balance to a zero sum, uh, to a, to, a, to zero from the negative, but to actually give us the inheritance and the worth and the value of His own moral record. So when God the Father looks at you and I. Individually and together, he sees the moral record of Jesus. Because of Jesus, then, we can call on and cry out to God without a mediator at all. His holiness and his nearness are now accentuated and made even more mind blowing in the love and intentionality that has to drive it to be true. Thank God. And we, we, when, we, when we grasp that, we should respond exactly how Psalm 99 does, which is to say, thank God, holy is He, and no wonder we worship Him. He's actually worthy of it. No one else loves like this. So, that is the first antinomy. It exposes, in a sense, the ways in which that we take for granted his love, because we don't slow down long enough to to percolate and taste and see how good this is, right? We don't let the the seeming contradiction of this of this this, this holiness and nearness to to cause us to pause and wonder. We think, oh, I understand that, and just move on. But we should wonder. So, for this next antinomy, um, which is about mercy and justice. I want to give a blanket, uh, don't hear what I'm not saying for the entire rest of the sermon. I've said it once. It applies throughout, so you can't hold, me, hold it against me. Um, and this is also why I'm realizing past, uh, preachers love big pulpits, so they can hide behind them. And so I want to focus especially on, on this theme in verse 8, which says, O oh Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. But an avenger of their wrongdoings, the word avenger is, is the same word translated as justice. And so, this, I'm not just kind of inserting there, that in there, okay? And it's, it's juxtaposed right here in one verse, and in such a way that, that the psalmist, kind of like Luke in the first example of an antinomy I, I gave you this morning, um, doesn't seem to ha- be pro- bothered by this, that, that, that it's a contradiction, You see, the the idea of God's holiness and nearness for the author of Psalm 99, that was bonkers to the original audience, okay? But justice and mercy, unlike us, the psalmist has no problem with. We think and find this as even crazier. That begs the question of why. So, for the few of you who were here when we launched, you might remember that our first ever worship service in the back of where uh, E. Simpson Coffee used to be, the first sermon I preached was on the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, sp- I'm gonna give spoiler alert um, that, that parable is really about not just one prodigal son, but a prodigal God who loves and is generous and prodigal in his love. He spends whatever it takes to love both an older and a younger son. The older son was very much more legalistic and where the younger son was hedonistic or licentious. And my whole point in that sermon was that if God is is our divine host, if grace in so many ways is the vehicle of God's grace, is given through hospitality, in and through his people, in belonging to his covenant people, then there is room at the table for both older brothers and younger brothers. And what I meant by that, right, the, the older brother... Is very much this, you know, the picture of the older brother. If we translate for this for modern context, is the kind of self righteous, religious conservative who gets their dignity, value, and worth from doing the righteous thing, but are often so consumed with the injustice of other people's sins that they miss the point entirely, which is the God's, uh, which is of God's, our Father's prodigal love and mercy. It is an emphasis of justice at the expense of mercy, a, a discomfort with the antinomy of justice and mercy that causes us to, to favor one over the other in ways that God refuses to. It's very Puritan in its posture. On the other hand, the younger son, the younger brother, the modern equivalent would be kind of the, you know, the secular relativist or the progressive who lives their truth and pursues their passion but also takes the Father's prodigal love and mercy for granted because it doesn't take stock of the, the, the consequences of their actions on others. And it's, it's kind of about cheap grace, a kind of hedonism. So you have the kind of Puritan and the hedonist. God says, you're both welcome at the, at the table. You're loved. The gospel's for all of you. I did not realize how idealistic And aspirational, that would be at the time. And especially because those two categories have been less and less accurate as time has gone on, and in a way that has just basically been turned upside down about two years ago. Um, Has anybody heard the name, let me illustrate this, has anybody heard the name Charles Hapgood? Okay, cool. There is absolutely zero reason for you to. Um, I am not, right, I know my lane, I'm a pastor, I'm not a scientist, uh, but Charles Hapgood came up with a theory of why the dinosaurs went extinct that I'm almost certain has been entirely disproven since I first read about this. Um, but his theory was interesting, which was using kind of geological evidence. His theory was that over time, the, the magnetic poles on the earth were, were kind of shifting and became unstable. And then suddenly, almost overnight, they flipped. And in flipping, it just jacked with everybody's expectations, and the, you know it set off migration hazards and uh, crazy weather events, and that was why the dinosaurs went extinct. Again, this is a very good sermon illustration, and not great science. <laughs> Similarly, and culturally, our poles started shifting and becoming significantly more unstable about six-ish years ago, And then reached a tipping point in 2020, which became the skyscraper that broke the camel's back. And here's how they flip, and here's also where I duck, right? Now, the older brother, the new Puritans, is the cultural left. Canceling, cancel culture as a whole, functions so much like a a kind of secular excommunication that uses and weaponizes shame to de- to, to demonize and to, de, to dehumanize, and also to silence actual good arguments. Um, Barry Weiss, who is a, a journalist, she's former editor at uh, the New York Times. She's also, which is helpful for the sake of this context to know, uh, a lesbian and an atheist Jew. Um, uh, she recently said in a speech, described this very dynamic unbelievably well and I'm going to re- it's kind of a long quote by promise it is chock full of good stuff she said um, the ideology that is trying to unseat liberalism in America begins by stipulating that the forces of justice and progress are in war against backwardness and tyranny and in a war the normal rules of the game must be suspended indeed this ideology would argue that those rules are not just obstacles to justice but tools of oppression They are the master's tools, and the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. So the tools themselves are not just replaced, but repudiated. Persuasion, the purpose of argument, is replaced with public shaming. Moral complexity is replaced with moral certainty. Another way of saying that is self-righteousness. Facts are replaced with feelings. The rule of law is replaced with mob rule. Ideas are replaced with identity. Forgiveness is replaced with punishment. Debate is replaced with disinvitation and deplatforming. Diversity is replaced with homogeneity of thought. Inclusion with exclusion. Excellence with equity. In this ideology, disagreement is recast as trauma. So speech is violence. But violence, when carried out by the right people in pursuit of a just cause, is not violence at all, but in fact, justice. This is one of the most succinct descriptions I have ever come across of of a uh, kind of left, progressive, flavored, but yet still legalistic ideology of justice without mercy. Now, as you know, if you've been here more than a few weeks, I'm very fair, so let's talk about the other side, right? The younger brother is now, the new hedonists are now the cultural right who says, and has said, that there is no excuse for writing, there is no excuse for looting, I don't care how bad it is, unless you are threatening or intimidating the most important democratic institution in our country's history. My body, my choice, a statement of radical autonomy and individualism, is now co-opted and repurposed for masks. By exchanging truth for certainty as an ethical compass, right-wing moral relativism, which used to once be a defining feature of the left, justified electing a serial sexual assaulter just 15 years after impeaching a president for adultery, which in comparison feels remarkably trite. I'm not defending anybody. That is not a political statement. I'm just trying to pull out these narratives so that we can allow them to see maybe ways we're being uncritical in how we understand ourselves and each other. But this is as much a licentious ideology of mercy without justice, of, of hypocrisy as, as the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Okay, why in the world am I dwelling on this? I, you, you pro, I know you probably missed this in Psalm 99, okay? Okay. I'm saying this because this is an apocalyptic psalm. I'm saying this because it exposes things inside us that maybe we don't do enough business or spend enough time considering before we take it to our filter and lens as we read the text, right? I'm dwelling on this because, number one, this this is the root of so much polarization and, and our social fabric tearing apart at the seams. And it's because we can't tolerate antinomies anymore. We can't sit in the tension of justice and mercy, especially when we are far more convinced of one than the other, and our neighbors don't share that same conviction. We have difficulty being in the same community or in relationship with people who fall on the other side of that fence, and I know this because I and other pastors constantly process and try to support each other in in, in, the, in what feels like an, a near inevitable uh, leaving and departure of people from, from the church, because, not because of what I as, or other pastors believe, believe, but because of what each other believes. I can't be in the same church family or community with people who disagree with me. <sighs> if disagreement is hard to be in community with each other, wait till you try to be in community with each other despite sin. The second reason I'm dwelling on this is because if we can't deal with this horizontally, we also are not dealing with this horizontally. Or sorry, vertically. They're related. We are bringing to this text and this antinomy and we're glossing over those terms, assuming that the psalmist or God in his word is, are using the terms in the way that we are using the term. And then we say yes and amen to the part that we agree with and we pretend the other part isn't there. One of my favorite and also one of the most to me, terrifying passages in Scripture is in the book of Joshua when uh, Joshua is leading God's people from wilderness to uh, to promised land, and they come to the city of Jericho, which is a fortress, and they're camped outside the city, wondering how in the world are we gonna how are we gonna take the city? We this is insurmountable, right? It's the first real challenge post wandering in the wilderness, and in that um, narrative. Joshua, it says Joshua sees a man who's standing out between the army and the city, and he goes out to meet him, and he recognizes that he's not just a man, that there's something about him, and he asks this man, who is later described as an angel of the Lord, or the angel of the Lord, which we, theologically, this is a different sermon, you can ask about it later if you want, that there are a few instances of a pre-incarnate, so pre-New Testament appearance of Jesus, and that's what they think is who this is. And in this conversation with him, Joshua asks the angel of the Lord, he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord responds, no. I reject the premise of your question. No, he doesn't say that part. He says, no, but I am the commander of the Lord's army. Remove your sandals for you stand on holy ground. Joshua bows and kneels and worships. and We know that this is God himself in some form or fashion coming down to meet with him directly because the angel of the Lord does not stop him from worshiping like every other angel does. If God only ever agrees with us and never challenges us or discomforts us, then we have remade him in our own image. Here's where I'll end before we jump into the questions. So definitely send those in. Great. So what's the antidote to this? What do we do with this? Our antidote is the the very thing that we are talking about, beautifully. That God's antinomies beget our humility. Let me give an example. Within this psalm, that would have been very much, this is exactly how it would have been processed by the original audience of this psalm. In verse 4, The psalmist says, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity, amen, right? You have executed justice and righteousness, amen, in Jacob. Jacob? If you know anything about Jacob, you know that his name in Hebrew means deceiver, liar. It's like, he's like the Old Testament Loki. I think that works. Sometimes I should stick stick to my notes. But anyway, if you know anything about his biography, right, his father was, was Isaac, and Isaac's father was Abraham. This is, he's part of the, like, God's promise to make a people out of Abraham and his seed and to bless them. It's part of this covenant faithfulness. And yet this guy may be the single most selfish person in all of Scripture. He stole, using treachery and trickery, his brother's birthright, he dishonestly won the hand of two sisters as his wives, fooling his then now father-in-law. He flagrantly mistreats one because she's not as pretty as the other one. And then to top it all off, as, as he and his family and all of his servants and all of his wealth that he has, he has gained since running from his, his, his brother who could beat the tar out of him, he go, going back home... On the way, when he hears that his brother is coming with soldiers, he says, okay, women and children go first, and servants go first. Because he's thinking is that if his brother sees them first, maybe it'll cool down his anger and he'll take pity on me. This guy is an abuser. And that's the guy God chooses to bless, to favor, to execute, To have executed justice and righteousness within him? That was a reference to her. You can laugh. Thank you, Todd. If what I'm describing and God's grace to someone like Jacob is offensive, then you critically underestimate God's radical mercy. If what I just described is to you no big deal, it kind of makes sense. Yes, I can accept that then you critically underestimate God's faithfulness to execute justice. And maybe you shouldn't be as okay with accepting that. But if you are conflicted and between feeling that kind of humbling shame that causes the psalmist to say the people's tremble, and yet also the joyful awe that says, holy is He, exalt the Lord our God, worship at His footstool. If, like... Like, this is that, that feeling conflicted is the entire mood of Psalm 99. If you can't decide whether Psalm 99 is, is more comforting or discomforting, then I think you're probably pretty close to a- apprehending the beautiful, joyful, and humbling mystery of the king's antinomies. That's, exact, that's a really good place to be in. And it's especially a really good place to be in, in a, a time and an age, in In our world right now, where everybody has complete and total certainty and a lot of self-righteousness, it's a bad sign. So let's see what fun questions I got today. Question number one, what do you think it is that makes us as a culture and as individual people unable to tolerate antinomies anymore? What changed? Oh, man. A lot of things changed. Um, part of it is uh, we are in a Western, like Western culture, in a, in, in as a whole, loves a light switch. We like on or off. Dimmers? How much do you want to turn it on? No, we just we like the the, the the dichotomy. We like either or, both and is never mind mystery. We're products of the Enlightenment. This is kind of uncomfortable for us in general, culturally. That's just across the board. What has made it particularly bad lately, and I will, I, I love to hate to rant and rave about this, but I am I'm beyond convinced that social media has, has taken existing silos and made them even more narrow echo chambers. And so when you only get news feeds that feed your own self righteous outrage and your own certainty, you lose the ability and your muscles for tolerance and inclusivity and accepting other people despite what they think or believe, actually, they just, they atrophy. Um, and so, it becomes much harder. Add in change as a whole, infuses society with anxiety, and so, like, it's, we're just going to be there for a bit anyway. This is why we've been talking for so long about the importance of the church being both a refuge and a place for building resilience, because the storm's not over, but we have such resources in places like this in Psalm 99. By the way, if you would like to talk about this at the picnic, there are a few things I geek out about more and am happy to talk about. So please come and ask more questions than this. Okay, how would you articulate God's antinomies beget our humility so an eight-year-old can comprehend it? (laughs) I love this question, and I'm actually gonna like kind of twist it and turn it back. Eight-year-olds have no problem with this. I'm convinced that one of the things that are caught, when Jesus says that we are called to have childlike faith, it is actually a comf, a, 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 an acceptance and comfort with mystery and, and wonder and not having to have everything sync up so perfectly in our brains that we're able, to, we're able to explain it. I think it's actually okay to tell your eight-year-old, I don't know, isn't that cool? That God is bigger than my ability to understand Him. So if you ever feel like you don't understand God, you know what? All of us feel that way sometimes. But what we do, what we can, and do know is He's good, and that He is all about justice and mercy, holiness and nearness, both. Great question. Now your kids are going to be able to go to school though and talk about antinomies, and it's like they're going to be so cool. All right. Apart from justice and mercy, how else have we, the church, our church, made God into our own image? So it says, the church, comma, our church. So I'm assuming that this is asking both, like, the church as a whole and also the table. Um, so this is, a, this is a good question. Let me actually punt on the general church question. Um, because I think there's a lot we could talk about there. And I think it's actually really important that we say and, and name some of the things um, specific to us. And, and I don't know if I want to include all of you in it. I'll just maybe speak to me, speak for me, and say that I think when we first, um, when we first launched, I very much had this kind of like, you know what? We're gonna trust the older brother is gonna come and show up anyway, and, um, so we're going to be really, and especially about the younger brother, because you know what? Older brothers have churches they can, they can go to, and younger brothers don't. You know, we, we, we have since labeled uh, the younger brother um, post-evangelical, and many of you would say that, yep, that shoe fits. I think where I erred, and uh, in my willingness to sit in the discomfort of that antinomy is I feel like I was very slow in recognizing those things flipping. And I think that um, in a lot of ways, the challenge that I had reserved for the more uh, right-leaning religious folk needed to be a lot more evenly applied also to the um, left-leaning relativist folk because what we are all provoked by is truth and love. And it's going to hit us different ways, but that doesn't mean that one way is more needed or more valid than another. So I want to try to like, keep these answers a little succinct because I got a lot of questions. But um, if that doesn't answer your question or you want to talk more about that, please come, come talk to me. Um, I'm going to end it with this one, actually. Psalm 99 seems to invite use to step into the no man's land of being canceled or vilified. If this is so, what's that look like? Uh, I think that was an autocorrect fail. Uh, Psalm 99, I think it says, Psalm 99 seems to invite us to step into the no man's land of being canceled or vilified. Um, I want to be careful answering this question. I don't see this psalm as calling us to do that as much as I do um, being wholly unconcerned and unworried about it. And that might lead one to do as you describe, whoever's asking this question, but it doesn't mean that it's calling us specifically, or that, um, or that there is a virtue of of that in and of itself. If that is a byproduct of our faithfulness, if it is if it is a consequence of our faithfulness, then okay. But that does not mean we don't speak truth with love, no matter who it is that we are speaking to. That's not easy especially when things feel like they are changing near nonstop and, and dramatically at, at the same time. And so I think that should in, engender in us a posture of humility that is neither Puritan nor Hedonist, but says, um, like the psalmist, Lord, you are holy. You have executed justice. You have been faithful to forgive and be a merciful God to us that brings a lot of peace, and we can we can live into that, whatever that means. So, um, gosh, I actually, I still remember um, when we first had our, our first service and in preaching on the parable of the prodigal son or the prodigal God, as I insisted at the time that this was, this is what the parable should have been uh, named, which is basically just repeating, Tim Keller, who's the fourth member of the Trinity, you know this. Um, that was a joke. Wow, y'all are like, it's okay. We can, we can joke about these things too. They're serious, but it's okay. Um, I still remember um, setting the table and um, describing God as our divine host. And it's, it's something that I think in our modern context, we don't associate bread and wine, as particu- like a especially in, in the small little uh, cubes that we have them, as like a feast. But the feast and the gratuitous, prodigal nature of God's love for us is in the fact that Christ is holy, the perfect mediator, and yet He has said the means by which I am going to be present, especially in a way that is unique among everything else in this world, is when you get together as the body of Christ to feast upon my presence. The bread is not literally Jesus. The blood, the, the the wine is not his his blood literally, but he is present with us. He is near. And that is a feast for our souls. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body, it is broken for you. I am set apart to you for your good. Likewise, he took the wine, he poured it out, and he said, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the forgiveness of sins. Even as justice is satisfied in, the broken, in my broken body, my mercy is extended in the washing with my blood." And as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. He says, in essence, you proclaim, holy is he. Exalt him, worship at his footstool. And for those of you who, that is your hope, this table is for you. Come and eat. Let's pray.